0: We never learned uh, before Nixon died whether he actually uh, ordered the break-in or participated in any way in that initial activity or whether his wrongdoing was limited to, as we might say, the, the, the cover-up that occurred afterward. But it, it pales in comparison to the activities that were undertaken surrounding the 2020 election. I think it's, it's minor league baseball uh, and, and this
1: is the World Series. Welcome to the award winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, We've had four January 6th hearings, a series of five, will be one more that have been investigating the January 6th insurrection at the United States Capitol. And it's been held and heard by the United States House Select Committee and available to all of us to watch as it's been underway. So what are these hearings going to uncover? Well, today on the episode of Lawyer to Lawyer, we're gonna be discussing these January 6th hearings. We'll take a look at the purpose, And the goals of the January 6th Select Committee, the potential criminal referrals to Merrick Garland at the Department of Justice by the committee, and whether there could be possible criminal prosecutions due to the information revealed in this hearing. Depending on where those prosecutions go, they may extend to some people who've actually been on our podcast before. Our guest today is William C. Banks, the Syracuse University College of Law Board of Advisors Distinguished Professor and Emeritus Professor at the College of Law and the Maxwell School as Professor of Public Administration and International Affairs. He's also Chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security, a teacher and scholar at SU for more than four decades, Banks was a founding director of the Institute for National Security and Counterterrorism, now the Syracuse University Institute for Security Policy and Law. Professor Banks is highly regarded and an internationally recognized scholar. The topics of his wide-ranging research include constitutional law and national security and counterterrorism law. Welcome to the show, Bill.
0: It's very good to be with you, Craig. Thank you.
1: And I'm glad to have you back. You've been on the show once before. And uh, this set of hearings is, uh, is something else. We have had uh, some testimony from a very well-known judge, Judge Ludig, who essentially says that it's uh, the edge of democracy. What's your thought about that?
0: Well, his, his uh, quote there is very memorable. I think Judge Ludig is... Uh, is a highly regarded and very conservative uh, jurist who's been in the field for a good long time. He's been uh, sort of a leading light in uh, federalist society circles for decades, uh, a prominent uh, uh, quotable source for leaders in the Republican party for decades. And to have him appear in the hearings and then also to issue such a stark warning uh, about the actions that were complained of on January 6th is really, I think, for those of us who pay close attention anyway, it's uh, quite a significant uh, mark against uh, the the Trump administration, the former Trump officials who were responsible for the wrongdoing that day.
1: And the, the judge has some very interesting relationships with uh, uh, Professor Eastman.
0: He does, uh, and Eastman and the Thomases, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Thomas's wife, uh, Ginny uh, Thomas, uh, they, they all uh, are part of a circle. But uh, this time, uh, it, it's not a good place to be, I think, inside that circle.
1: And if I'm reading it correctly, that, Senator, that uh, circle in, go, extends so far as to include Senator Cruz. <laughs> That's
0: right. Uh, it's a it's a club that only select members uh, could apply to over the years. But again, I, I think maybe renewal of membership may not be uh, high on some of their list. We'll see.
1: Well, given your allegory, what kind of uh, credentials did you have to have to get into that club? I, I think
0: it, you you needed good conservative credentials from the from the get go. Not January sixth credentials, of course. But the kind of credentials that would argue that uh, that the Constitution be should be strictly construed according to its text, uh, uh, owing uh, legacy to Justice Scalia and to others before him, and more recently uh, to current uh, conservative members of the Supreme Court, and it would be uh, uh, it would be longstanding membership in the Federalist Society and trumpeting the causes which are in general. Uh, less government uh, protection of, uh, of the right to bear arms, protection of uh, economic liberties, uh, less government regulation, fewer economic and social regulations, and very uh, crabbed and uh, conservative interpretations of uh, classic civil liberties like the right to equal protection and due process.
1: Where there's a whole years' worth of constitutional law in that statement that you just made. There are so many things to talk about, but let's, let's go inside the January 6th hearings. What has stood out to you? The
0: remarkable thing to me about the hearings is the, the care that the committee, a, by all standards, a bipartisan committee, has taken to construct a narrative that will stand the test of time, that will substantiate an historical record, whatever happens beyond the hearings, that a record will have been made for my children and your children and our grandchildren and other generations to come about the the serious threat to US democracy that was presented through that period from election day of 2020 through January 6th. I think that the committee has, has undertaken a, a tremendous amount of, of preparatory work here. You know, They have a fairly small staff, something like 45 or 50 uh, staff who are working. I, I know one of them, she's working virtually around the clock to prepare the materials, to prepare the members, to uh, gather the witnesses, get their statements, to sift through depositions and prepare the video and audio clips that accompany the live hearings. It's really like a a massive production that's been brought together now. what This is our fourth hearing today, I think with more yet to come. It's quite an impressive piece of work uh, apart from its historical significance.
1: And there, there's kind of two questions that flow from that. And I think I want to go first with the historical significance of it. There have been some folks that have kind of poo-pooed the January 6th hearings and said, you know, really, it's not that much worse than Watergate. And, you know, that was not a constitutional crisis like this is. Do you, do you see anything to compare the two? I mean, you and I are both old enough to have sat through and watched those hearings back in Watergate and, and the outcome of them. But what's your sense of how they relate to one another? It's
0: remarkable uh, to to talk about the parallels. I think that's a good point of departure. You know, I was in Washington last week and headed up a a couple of events where I was able to use my my MC uh, dais to note that on his, on one of the days, I think it was last Friday, was actually the 50th anniversary of the break in at the at the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate Hotel, and 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 so we talked a bit at that meeting about the significance of the of the event and the significance of the 50-year history. One of the starkest contrasts between Watergate and January 6th is that the principal players in Watergate agreed to abide by the rule of law once their activities were exposed. And indeed, it was the rule of law that caused many of them, including John Dean and other principals in the Nixon administration, to come clean. And indeed, for the president to concede once the Supreme Court had ruled that he had to turn over tape recordings of the cover up that he himself was culpable and needed to resign the presidency. So uh, a more humble uh, president than Donald Trump, to be sure, even though President Nixon clearly violated the law, he did so. And then when, when (laughs) when he was caught red handed, so to speak, he said, "Okay, you got me. Uh, I can't sustain the presidency in the face of having participated in a cover-up of Watergate. We never know, we never learned uh, before Nixon died whether he actually uh, ordered the break-in or participated in any way in that initial activity or whether his wrongdoing was limited to, as we might say, the the, the cover-up that occurred afterward. But it, it pales in comparison to the activities that were undertaken surrounding the 2020 election. I think it's, it's minor league baseball, uh, and, and this is the World Series.
1: And let's do that comparison. I mean, let's compare the, the, the minor leagues and the major leagues here, because you had Nixon, who was spying on the Democratic National Committee. In your mind, does Trump's grasping at straws to stay in power have any comparison with what Nixon did?
0: Well, it, I mean, the, the, the obvious comparison that I think uh, puts them on a similar playing field, at least even if minor as opposed to major league uh, dimensions, is that they were both uh, unlawful. It, it was unlawful for President Trump or whoever is ultimately responsible to orchestrate attempts to create substitute sets of electors from states that he thought might still be in play. It was unlawful. Uh, for President Nixon or whoever orchestrated the Watergate break-in to conduct a simple burglary to steal materials that it thought would help the Republican Party in the 1972 presidential election. Beyond that, I think, uh, again, we go from minor league to the World Series.
1: Right, in my mind, and you can... Correct me if I if you think I'm wrong. It seems to me that what Nixon was doing was spying to gain an advantage, but what Trump was doing was acting to stay in power, which That's right. is is a you know uh, to me a much worse crime. It's a
0: it's a much worse crime uh, by by orders of magnitude. That's right. And and then to to continue to persist in uh, in telling the lies and fomenting the, the false narrative that the election was stolen when everyone around him, including the attorney general of the United States, one of the most conservative attorneys general we've had in many decades, told him that his theories didn't hold up. He used the more colorful term, as I recall.
1: He did. I BS. He I, did. Uh, well, let's throw into the mix here what just happened in Texas with the GOP. I mean, here's a, a, a s- s- seemingly sensible group of people that have said, no, it's the big lie is, is the truth. Yes.
0: Uh, you know, a friend of mine uh, sent a message in the last couple of hours wondering if she could still, uh, go visit her brother next year in Texas. If they secede from the union, will they honor a U.S. passport? Uh, I thought that <laughs> was a, that was a pretty clever dig at, at what the Texans are up to. And Texas of course, isn't the only state that is, uh, completely embrace this false narrative. And in some states like Arizona, the the officials appear to be in sort of a Jekyll and Hyde uh, box that they uh, have a hard time escaping. Some officials like the man who testified today, uh, deeply conservative Republican, was still appalled at the effort of, of President Trump to get him to change uh, the certification of, uh, of Arizona electors and submit a, a different and false slate. He was having nothing to do with it. Uh, here's a very conservative man who uh, who paraded his conservative Christianity in front of the of the January 6th committee today, and uh, he's in a in a state where there were other Republicans who were calling him after the election, uh, requesting that he do just what President Trump then personally asked him to do sometime later. It's a crazy place. Texas, I think, is, is is gone over the edge, if you will, in Republican circles. We'll see if, uh, if Democratic candidates for statewide office there can fare any better in, right. in the next go-round.
1: Well, Bill, you we need to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs.
0: like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple.
1: And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by Bill Banks, law professor and an expert in constitutional law, national security law, and counterterrorism law. We've been talking about the January 6th hearings and some of the outflow from that. You know, you've pointed out that both Texas and Arizona have pretty much stepped over the edge. And for large part, I think Florida has, too. How are we going to deal with two different realities in 2024?
0: It's one of the most vexing uh, questions. Maybe it's it's the chief question that faces all of us, I think, for the next two years. And if I can circle back to these hearings, I think— it presents maybe the most difficult question for the attorney general of the United States now if at the end of these hearings and at the time that all of the transcripts and the depositions all the materials that are in possession of the committees are sent over to the department of justice uh, ultimately uh, the attorney general is going to have to decide whether to bring charges against Donald Trump and and i think that you know we could debate i think for Beyond the length of, of your podcast, whether uh, there are provable offenses that Donald Trump uh, committed there in the, in the days and weeks surrounding the election and up to and including January 6th. I believe that there are provable offenses there. I think most experts share that view. But that's a different question than the one should they be brought? Uh, You know, here the Attorney General of the United States not only has to, well, he has to weigh three things, really. He has to weigh first whether it's ethical for him, a member of the administration of President Joe Biden, uh, to make such a decision himself or should he appoint a special counsel. He could be perceived as ethically compromised because he was indeed appointed by uh, President Biden And I think the media has reported at some earlier time that President Biden admitted in a small group meeting that he thought that President, former President Trump should be prosecuted. That's problem one. Problem number two is that the attorney general would have to decide whether these offenses that are arguably committed by Donald Trump as a former president are provable is the requisite criminal intent. There's been a lot said and written about that question in in various ways over the recent weeks. And I think most uh, reasonable experts conclude that it's a tough case. It's a tough case to prove criminal intent when you're faced with a former president who so willfully uh, tells falsehoods and strays from a script and is a a loose cannon in in all his doings as president before and and as after his presidency, it's going to be difficult to demonstrate that his intention was to violate the laws of the United States. And that's a that's a requirement, of course, in a criminal case. The House doesn't have to pay attention to that in its committee hearings. In the civil litigation that's been ongoing, those judges don't have to demonstrate proof beyond a reasonable doubt and a criminal intention. So that's a very difficult uh, question. The third question, which I think is in some ways the most difficult, is would such a prosecution, even if successful, be good for the country? And that circles back to your, your question, what's going to happen in 2024? I fear the worst, and the worst would be, of course, a breakdown in civil society surrounding the next presidential election, whether it's Donald Trump against Joe Biden or two different individuals, it's bound to be. Uh, highly contested unless the world changes very dramatically in the next year or so. We don't know that Donald Trump is going to run, but it's certainly his all his uh, leanings and soundings are pointing in that direction. We don't know whether President Biden will seek a second term, but I think the more important question is whether it's Donald Trump, and if not Donald Trump, whether it's someone who's going to take the mantle of, uh, of Donald Trump uh, and the uh, Make America Great Again or Save America, whatever the most recent version is. And I think then uh, if we're faced with that and we have uh, a prosecution ongoing or even completed by then, and by the way, it might not be completed by 2024, given Donald Trump's uh, inevitable tendency to appeal every decision that is made in the, in the pretrial proceedings of a criminal case, we could be dragging a criminal prosecution if it comes well beyond the 2024 election. It's hard to imagine how we could all survive that and still have a constitutional democracy.
1: And look what the background is: we have GOP candidates threatening to hunt down his opponents. I mean, this is this cancer has gone pretty far.
0: This cancer has gone pretty far, and there's no sign that it's abating. It, if anything, it may be accelerating. At what the polls show, 4 in 10, Republicans uh, believe, or is it more than that? Some vast number of Republicans continue to believe that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. That's false, but it doesn't matter that it's false if it continues to be perpetuated and then actually influences the outcome of the next election. As we know, both of us and, and your listeners undoubtedly also know, Elections are run by the states, not by the United States, and states all across the country have been reforming their election procedures to actually make it more possible for these uh, kind of election-related shenanigans to occur and to make it less possible for many Americans to vote, cutting off early voting and all those other schemes that have been uh, perpetuated since this uh, 2020 election.
1: Right, and I'd, I think I'd be correct in adding a fine point that the majority of those states who have made those changes to the voting situations are Republican-controlled.
0: That's right. Majority certainly are. Not all of them, but most of
1: them. So we have this kind of insane, from a logic standpoint, from a legal standpoint, we have this kind of insane situation in front of us. How, yeah. do, we, how do we, you know, I, and I completely agree with you that the three points that you made about I think uh, about whether Trump should be prosecuted or not. Uh, Perhaps the most important being, is it good for the country? We've never prosecuted a president before.
0: Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine that it could be done in the current environment, the political, social environment that we live in, even if it wasn't Donald Trump, whose personality alone could uh, derail uh, any otherwise uh, uh, standard kind of uh, criminal prosecution. I really don't think it's good. And I I imagine that the attorney general is harboring those doubts as well. He's been very taciturn, uh, very close to the vest, as you would expect him to be throughout this process. Uh, And and he'll make a judgment based on those factors, I believe, that we just reviewed a moment ago. And and I, I, I just don't see it going forward.
1: Can he go out there and find a Kenneth Starr or an Archibald Cox as a special prosecutor? He could that do that. Punt it he could do that. Yeah. Save himself.
0: And, he, he, and it would certainly alleviate some of the tension surrounding his involvement in the matter. But still then, if uh, if the new uh, Ken Starr, Archibald Cox, recommends prosecution, would he do it? And, and we're back to that same uh, ultimate question of whether the country can stand and, and survive and thrive in the wake of a criminal prosecution of Donald Trump. I have my serious doubts. Hmm.
1: Well, Bill, it's time for another quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hey, Gee, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Gee, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law, And Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm back with Professor William C. Banks from Syracuse University, a law professor and expert in constitutional law. We've been discussing the January 6th hearings and in particular the prosecution of former President Trump. I've noted that in Georgia, it seems that a grand jury has been convened. Does Merrick Garland have that opportunity? Uh, no. Well, it's possible that they would
0: use a grand jury, but it's also possible that they could go directly to a criminal indictment. You know, a grand, a grand jury, of course, is also somewhat like the Congressional Committee, the House Committee. It's got a more uh, free-form, open-ended writ and an opportunity to, uh, to hear testimony without the requirement of examination, cross-examination of witnesses by defense counsel. If if they go to trial, if they do prosecute Donald Trump, of course, he's going to hire the best criminal defense lawyers that he can find. He's already, as I understand it from just following the news, he's already begun to do that. And indeed, he filed some 12-page paper over the last few days after the third congressional hearing, the third House hearing, that sounded a lot more lawyer-like than the usual ramblings of his political diatribes that are following the other two hearings, and this this hearing pointed out that that they're going to uh, uh, pull every loose thread that they can to try to unravel uh, a criminal prosecution instead present uh, an individual who honestly believed that the election had been stolen from him, and that it was entirely within the realm of his article two powers as President of the United States to find votes in Georgia, in Arizona, or in the other states that were in doubt.
1: I'm not sure I would call them elite, but I would suspect that there are a limited number of criminal law attorneys uh, available to President Trump for that.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, I think that that there are many, who, some who've already been to work for some of the Trump group, the Steve Bannon lawyers and others who already probably uh, uh, paid for their retirement uh, through the, the good efforts of trying to represent those who were accused. I think Mr. Eastman is going to need good counsel. I imagine that uh, Mr. Giuliani is going to need good counsel. It's uh, it's good time to be a criminal defense lawyer. I would say
1: there are a lot of candidates. Well, I want to take just a moment and tease perhaps a future episode. Maybe we can get you on for a more uh, in depth discussion of this point for a third time. But you have a very specific specialty of the use of drones and uh their use without declarations of war can you give us a little bit of detail on that because just i I, specifically the ethics of that
0: yeah well it's true i have uh worked in that space for a long time and i you know i was a uh, around at the beginning, as they say, if you and I can both remember the Watergate hearings, we both remember the days after nine eleven when the U.S. first began in two thousand two and three uh, to rely on pilotless aircraft to uh, inflict drone missile uh, force at targets, terrorist targets in uh, in the battlefield, first in Afghanistan. So, from two thousand two and three, when uh, when the first sort of crude Hellfire missiles were fired from uh, Reaper drones in the Afghan uh, battlefield, as we both know, the the use of pilotless aircraft has become uh, a really popular and sometimes number one uh, tool in the quiver, if you will, of US decision makers, both in the Pentagon and in the CIA to quell the terrorist threat, uh, mostly in the Middle East and South Asia, but sometimes in Africa as well. It's remarkable, I think, that uh, as the as the technology has become more sophisticated, uh, we are able to be uh, more discriminating. Uh, those who are responsible for the targeting with sophisticated photographic equipment can now, uh, could now see whether or not uh, you or I have uh, dandruff uh, and, and the, the color of tie that, that we might be wearing right now, uh, even from a great distance from way up in the sky, that wasn't possible in the early years. So the the downside of drone use, of course, is that they uh, they aren't always good at discriminating between lawful targets, the bad guys, the terrorists, and civilians who may be in the same vicinity. We're getting better at being able to do that and indeed even those who are extremely critical of u s drone use have admitted that over the years the number of uh, so-called civilian casualties uh, as a result of effective drone use has uh, decreased and the percentage of civilians to uh, to appropriate targets has uh, dwindled considerably over the years still uh, it's very difficult to establish in advance in every case that the only fatality or only injury that will result from a targeted drone strike is the target himself. Uh, In the Biden administration, there has been a concerted effort now that's gone on for the better part of the year and a half that the administration's been in place to try to refine the targeting criteria to set standards and parameters for on-field commanders to utilize before uh, using that technique in future uh, counterterrorism operations. The problem with the effort, those standards are not yet final so far as any of us knows. Problem with the effort is that the the Taliban now are the government of Afghanistan. When Afghanistan fell apart and and the United States withdrew precipitously uh, last year, uh, the whole fabric for counterterrorism in that region changed. We no longer have a an ally in the government of Afghanistan. And indeed, we may have an adversary. So it's far more difficult to get the job done in that particular place. It's also true that the, the drones have been used this year in 2022 uh, on strikes inside Somalia, uh, targeting al-Shabaab militants there. And again, the new targeting criteria. We don't know exactly how much discretion the on-field commanders are given. So I guess you know my takeaway. The bottom line would be that uh, uh, the targeting has gotten better. The technology is much more sophisticated. Uh, the United States continues to make mistakes, fewer mistakes than in the past. But because the the device itself, the tool, the pilotless aircraft, with so little risk to U.S. personnel. Is so effective in in lots of circumstances, it's going to continue to be one that we see in counterterrorism.
1: Thank you for that. And we're going to, I'm going to extend the invitation right now and ask one of our producers to uh, make these arrangements with you. But you said two words that were of, I think, tremendous interest and could launch a whole podcast a legal target. So, Let's tease that for the next issue that we have an opportunity to talk together. But I'd like to flip back now and give you the opportunity, since we've just about reached the end of our program, to share your final thoughts, Bill, on the January 6th hearings and the majority of the conversation we've had so far and provide your contact information as well as anything you'd like to uh, let our listeners know about.
0: Uh, thank you, Craig. I, you know, I think the main takeaway from the hearings, whatever happens uh, with the remaining hearings and whatever happens with the decision to prosecute or not prosecute uh, Donald Trump is their contribution to history. As I said at an early part of the program, I think the committee has done a marvelous job at documenting the record of the events leading up to January 6 and January 6 itself as we know, in 2022, a record has to be multimedia, and this one certainly is. They have some incredible video footage, some of it deeply disturbing, and all of it really illuminating That is going to be around to, ta- to stand the test of time and to teach, uh, you know, again, our children, grandchildren, and other generations about this threat to democracy. So I think that's the value. Uh, that's the takeaway from the hearings, and whatever else happens, they're uh, a worthwhile endeavor for that reason. I'd be happy to be in touch with your listeners. My name again is Bill Banks. My uh, my email address is wcbanks at syr.edu. Uh, as I mentioned, and I think you did, uh, Craig, uh, in the introduction, I'm uh, I'm the chair of an American Bar Association committee. It's called the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. It's the oldest standing committee of the ABA. It was actually started by Justice Lewis Powell in 1962. So we're we're coming up on our 60th anniversary this year. We plan a major conference in the fall. One of the things that the Standing Committee does that many of your listeners might be interested in is we produce a, a podcast called National Security Law Today. Uh, it's abaamericanbar.org at NatSecurity. You can find it on the ABA website, of course, and you su- can subscribe on any of the platforms which you usually use to find your podcasts. Uh, we have a weekly podcast. I'm not the host. Uh, Alisa Potit, a really distinguished uh, Justice Department attorney, uh, is the host, and she does a bang-up job. So it's been nice to be with you, Craig, and I look forward to the next opportunity.
1: Well, thank you, Bill. You've been a fantastic guest and very informative. Uh, some of the, the things you've said are quite frightening, but uh, wow, we're we're in for a ride. Here we are. It's been a pleasure having you on the show likewise. Thank you. As a uh, pseudo-journalist here, I guess, in the sense that I present information to individuals and listeners, I did something today that I haven't done before I think in the my history of the long podcast that we've got here is I called what President Trump has created a cancer on the country. And as much as I think that journalistically commentators like me don't have the opportunity to make those statements, uh, in this situation, I think Professor Banks is entirely right. We are looking at uh, some civil unrest, certainly in 2024. And As many other uh, guests on this podcast have said over time, we have a lot of decision points coming in democracy that uh, are going to present some serious questions for us all to face. We're trying to fix it. Here we are talking about it and addressing it. So chime in if you think that you've got a point of view and let us know what you think. Well, if you like what you heard today or at least uh, have understood what we said today. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us on the LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams, thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. We'll be back with a continuation in our series of The Life of a Lawyer. But remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network.